Welcome to the Island Binance Forum 2023. We are very excited to have you here. Let me take a moment to introduce you to Island Innovation. Island Innovation is a network that has created a platform for worldwide island communities to share knowledge and collaborate on sustainable development initiatives. This platform showcases opportunities and solutions, but equally important, it is a connection hub for like-minded individuals, specialists, potential partners, and investors. Allen Innovation is also a full-service digital communications agency. We offer a wide range of services, including stakeholder mapping, press relations, branding, event management, market analysis, and content. Our team and network of experts have a deep understanding of the sustainability landscape, and we know just how important communication is to driving positive change. We are dedicated to supporting our clients in communicating their solutions and facilitating new connections. We are all set to start this session. If you would like to learn more about Island Innovation and our agency, please visit our website or get in touch with a team member. Enjoy your session. Hello and welcome to this session of the Island Finance Forum. Uh, my name is James Ellsmore. I'm the CEO of Island Innovation, and I am delighted to be here with you for this fascinating discussion, what I know will be a fascinating discussion, on the Bridgetown Initiative um, and the issues behind that of, of why the Bridgetown Initiative is so necessary. For those of you who joined the opening session earlier, you will have heard various references to this topic uh, from the ministers who spoke earlier today. And if we're going to have a, events like the Island Finance Forum, to me, it seems absolutely crucial that we address this, uh, this program. So with that, I would like to introduce our speaker, Professor Avinash Pasau. He is a public intellectual from Barbados who currently serves as the special envoy to the, envoy to the Prime Minister on investment and financial services. Uh, Bayesian with Caribbean roots from Trinidad and Guyana. He has a regional perspective to share with us. He's also an Emirat um, uh, professor emeritus on, uh, from the Gresham College in London and has a great many other positions, numerous major awards and honors in international finance and economics, and was ranked as one of the top three public intellectuals in the world on a financial crisis by a panel of leading experts. Um, Professor Avinash, we are delighted to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking... Uh, the, the, the pleasure is mine, James, to be here. Thanks very much for having me. So to kick off this conversation, I'd really like to ask you um, more broadly, does the financial system, do the systems that we have in place cater for the unique needs of SIDS economies, small island developing state economies like Barbados? Well... Clearly not, um, but there are a number of, of reasons why. And I, I think that if we want to change things, we need to understand why. One of the challenges is that finance has become big finance and big finance is uninterested in small places. 
um, investing in a small island will never move the needle of their overall returns and success. And yet they'll need to invest uh, extra time and money and people in understanding this new place they've invested in. And so that ratio of, of return uh, to cost and expense, um, they'd much rather focus on other places. So I think that's one of the fundamental problems. I think there's another underlying issue going on though, um, which makes things worse than normal because that's the normal situation we've had. But we've seen a deterioration of the rule-based international system over the years. The kind of system that developed after World War II, where it was very clear the need for rules uh, and peace and security uh, with an inclusive regime. And over the years, that's broken down. Our international organizations that are most democratic, the UN General Assembly, the WTO, over time, power has been taken away from them. And the people who will suffer most, the, 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 the constituency that will suffer most are small island developing states. If you're powerless and you're small, um, a world without rules is a, is a dangerous world. That is why, you know, one of the reasons why the British Town Initiative is, is, is important for us is that when you've got these elephants trampling around, you can't be unseen and unheard because um, you'll just get squashed. We've seen this breakdown of rules impacting trade rules and our access to major markets. Uh, we've also seen um, we've also seen an increase of um, ad hoc listings uh, uh, of small island states by large countries. Um, and we are often powerless to do much about it. And these, are, these listings are invariably extremely unwarranted and unfair and prejudicial. Um, we're being listed for things that the big countries are often much worse at. So these are all challenges that, that we face. And, and the reason why we have to stand up and be heard and be seen. We cannot be invisible in this world that we've entered. Thank you very much for that. And I think it's important to outline that this is not just a climate change conversation. Of course, climate change compounds these issues. But as you mentioned, these are conversations that these are these are challenges that exist before climate change and are being accelerated. Um, I just wanted to mention that we do have a poll shared. Uh, so please do answer that. And I can see in the chat that some people are already introducing themselves. So great to see people joining from Brazil, from Trinidad and Tobago, Tunisia, Washington, D.C., uh, a lot of people from Trinidad and Tobago, Timor-Leste, Cabo Verde, Bermuda, St. Lucia, so Bahamas, Nigeria, a lot of people from Barbados as well. So a great combination of people, Virgin Islands. And in the, in the poll, I can see around half of people participating from the Caribbean and others from um, different parts of the world, even a few of you in the middle of the night in the Pacific. So we appreciate you being here if you are. Um, fantastic, great to see this, this range of places. And I guess that's important when we're thinking about these issues faced by small island developing states. Um, what we see in the Caribbean is also um, mirrored in the Pacific in small states in, in Africa um, as well. Um, this, the issue really comes down to scale in a lot of ways. When we talk about the need for investment or the lack, um, the lack of investments, it's 
often that the money that is available is just not on an appropriate scale for small nations by um, such as Barbados. Um, how how do these systems, in the way that they're currently set up, how do they how are they biased against small islands and small island states and small nations in general? Well, it's a big question, Jeremy and, uh, and James. It, you know, there, there are lots of uh, variety of ways. Um, I think private finance, as I as I mentioned earlier, is going to struggle um, given big finance. It's going to struggle in investing in small places. Um, you might say that then we can rely and we will have to rely more on development finance, multilateral development institutions. They too have challenges in, in, in understanding some of the issues in small states. Uh, we often work closely with all of our development partners and, and we find that they will bring a solution to us that may well work in, in Brazil or Argentina, but maybe not in, a, in an island 40 miles by 22. And the way, uh, you know, we don't have deep liquid markets. So one of the things I, I'm confronting a lot is that when you come from a large country, this notion that if only you fix the policy, you get the regulation right, people will come. That may well work in Germany. That may well work in, in, in India uh, uh, and in, in Brazil and um, in, in the United States. It doesn't work in small places. Our, our private sector is shallow. It is, um, and we, you know, we need to work with them very closely in a partnership to move us along in, the, in where we want to go. We can't take a passive standoff approach. Uh, the same kind of approach you could take in a large country. So given those obvious differences between Barbados and Argentina or, or Nigeria, why, how, why does this current approach, why does it make sense to ally or to work together with the other emerging economies that may be of a vastly different scale? There must be some commonalities, some issues with the current system that are shared by all emerging economies, regardless of size. Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how do we, um, how do we make an impact? Um, because, uh, you know, one of the challenges we have for many tropical small island developing states are smack in the middle of the most climate vulnerable area of the world. And if the world does not mitigate the climate in terms of the energy transformation, there's no degree of loss and damage finance or, or, or mitigation, uh, sorry, or adaptation and resilience that we could do that would save us. So, you know, we need these things, but unless the world mitigates, those things will, will never be enough. And so how do we influence the world to mitigate? How do we have presence in the world and, and get them to listen to us? Um, and I think that we have to recognize that we are small. And so if you add up all the island states with a population of less than a million people, um, which is one common definition of small, what, we're like 70 million people. We're like 1% of the global population. They're not gonna change global finance. 
for 1% of the world's population. So we need to attach ourselves to that larger group, which is sharing many of our challenges. And that's why you know, we attach ourselves willingly to uh, the group of climate vulnerable countries. The United Nations has, 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 um, has study has shown that uh, the, the countries that lie between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, 15 degrees on either side of the equator, are uh, the most climate vulnerable, are experiencing climate-related uh, costs that are four times greater than what people are experiencing outside of that area. Um, it represents 40% of the world, 3.2 billion people. So we can easily align ourselves with this group they're experiencing a challenge we're experiencing. Some of them include large landlocked countries, but they're experiencing many of the issues we're experiencing. And the world will stand up and listen to 40% of its population, especially because, as I often say to people, you know, if you are not currently a small island development state, you are very unlikely to become one. But if you are not currently a climate vulnerable country, you could become one. You could become one if the world doesn't change. And so not only is this a bigger group of countries, a powerful group of countries, it is a group that is expanded and it's a group that people relate to everywhere. And I think that's why we've had more traction on the climate side than we've had in the past on other equally important dimensions of poverty and development. Climate is, is a dimension of poverty and development. Um, it's just one dimension and there are others, but that's the one in which people have listened, uh, stood up and listened to. Mm -hmm. even, even before we get to the climate issue, again, these issues have, have existed. And for many countries like Barbados and other countries in the Caribbean that achieved independence, Posts 1950s, post World War II, um, there's a certain system in place that seems to perpetuate um, a lot of the global power structure. To what extent do we still see a legacy of the former colonial structure that in these new or, or not so new, in these economic institutions that exist? Well, the, um, you, you, you're, you're trying to draw a lot of systemic issues and, and they're important, but I'm not sure how unique they are to small island developing states. I think they're unique to developing countries. Uh, we have uh, a, a global economic and financial system that is skewed towards um, a small number of countries. Remember when the, the Bretton Woods system that we, uh, of the international institutions that we uh, observe today, the IMF, the World Bank, even the the, the origins of the World Trade Organization were established in what, 1947, 1948. Um, that was before most of us were independent. Uh, that was a, a world of, a, a, you know, a very small number of, of independent countries, developing countries not very well represented. Um, and we have a global financial system that is very driven, very dollar-centric and very centric to uh, a small number of developed country currencies. Embedded within the international financial system, these currencies are viewed as safe assets. Um, and as a result, whenever there's a crisis anywhere in the world, you get this asymmetry 
where the world is fleeing towards these safe assets, away from our assets towards their assets. Now that allows them to respond to crises very well because they're being awash with money. Spending money when you're awash with money is easy. We are losing money at the time of a crisis. And so that makes crises so much worse. Uh, you know, we are trying to defend a country when uh, you know, your currency might be under tremendous pressure. You're losing reserves. You have to raise interest rates, you have to tighten your fiscal belt, your government spending. Uh, and that makes the crises doubly bad. In the rich economies, they're able to loosen their monetary policy, expand their fiscal policy. They're able to act counter-cyclically and dampen the crisis. And we cannot, we, we have to act um, pro-cyclically, uh, making a crisis worse. So that's a function of an asymmetrical economic and financial system, which um, is the way it is not by nature, not by default. It can be changed and reformed. Um, uh, and, and that's about emerging markets as a whole. That's not about, you know, Brazil and Nigeria and India are as disadvantaged um, in that system as, as the Caribbean, the Pacific and the, and the Indian Ocean countries are. Small size comes with additional problems, but it also comes with opportunities. Um, you know, if you look at some of the most successful countries, they've also been small countries. So, you know, we, we have lots of challenges of vulnerability that comes from smallness and lots of challenges that come from being a developing country uh, in, a, in a very asymmetrical financial system. So given the um, challenges and the issues that we've discussed, how does the Bridgetown Initiative, and I should say I've been using the Bridgetown agenda, but was uh, corrected that the Bridgetown Initiative is the, is the preferred term now. Um, how is this initiative proposing that the system is, is changed? And, and what are the key steps that you see as necessary for this reform, which is, is, is essentially an overhaul of the global financial system? I mean, this is no small undertaking that's being proposed. That's right. But, you know, if we went out and said, that's what we're going to do, the, the, the gates will start coming down pretty quickly. Uh, and so we don't tend to say it like that, James. We tend to say that, look, these are five things that we can achieve in 12 to 18 months. These are five practical things we can do. And they've been curated. They're not any five. They're five things which if you did, you would reshape the international financial system. Uh, you would allow us to um, uh, develop uh, and you will allow us uh, to uh, contribute to um, a, a more sustainable world. And um, I think we are building on the fact that for us, the, the, the planet has a, has a, a limit going above 1.5 degrees of warming isn't a, it's not a goal or a target, it's a limit. It's a physical, chemical, biological limit. And as we breach that limit, we get cascading events interacting with each other in ways that we find hard to even forecast and model. And so the rich countries recognize that here is an area of definite mutual interest. And we say, well, you know, you, you, there are three things you need to do if you want to stop that happening. Um, 
the studies have shown that you need $2 trillion being invested in developing countries, not in SIDS alone. In fact, you know, we're, we're a small percentage of that, but $2 trillion in developing countries. And we need to break that up. So Bridgetown is a system of finance. Because if I said, I need $2 trillion, well, people will, uh, you know, they might even laugh. It's such a big number. Uh, and just to put that into context, the total amount of development aid in the whole world on everything, not just climate, everything, is $200 billion a year. Mm -hmm. So what we need to save the planet is 10 times what has been given in aid. And so you've got to go beyond aid. I mean, I could, I could say, you know, I could say you owe us, you need to give us 10 times the amount uh, of, of, of sport. It's a perfect country. Um, it is your historical uh, moral responsibility. But it's not like we haven't said that before. And the likelihood of success is slim. Uh, so, you know, we, we're presenting a, a, a regime which is possible and critical. Um, and we basically say you'll divide up the finance into three buckets. There's a bucket of things for which there's a revenue attached. Solar farms make money. Wind mm -hmm. turbines make money. Hydroelectric power makes money. And so what we need to bring that money to developing countries is something quite catalytic and specific. And, there's a, and that's the biggest bucket. The second mid-sized mid bucket is where there are no revenues attached, but there's savings. You know, if we invest in a better seawall, if we invest in better drainage systems, in better rainwater harvesting uh, investments, you know, we, we can save money. We won't necessarily make money, we can save money. And so we need to, we can borrow for that. We can borrow for that resilience and adaptability to the new world. Um, but we would sink under oceans of debt if we had to borrow on commercial terms. And we may need to borrow, but we need to borrow a lot because we, there's no point us being resilient in 20 years time, we need to be resilient now. And so we're arguing that the multilateral development banks need to expand their lending to developing countries. They have to need to double or treble their lending. Um, they have to lend on new terms. 50-year money, not 10-year money. We, we pay over 50 years and low cost, not the market rate of interest, but the rate of interest based that the development banks themselves borrow at. They're AAA rated institutions. They borrow at 3 or 4%. We're now borrowing at 9%. Many of our fellow countries are borrowing at 15%, 20%. So that's, the, that's how we fill the second bucket. Um, uh, low cost, long term lending for resilience building. Of course, I'd love free money and grants to, to, do, to build resilience, but uh, I, the, I could sit there and ask for it and it won't happen. So let, let other people ask for it. I'm after making a difference. And then there's the third bucket. The third bucket has no revenues, no savings. It has to be funded by international grants provided through new levies, because we know aid budgets are, aid budgets are not increasing, they're shrinking. So we need new levies. And those levies could be on things that are easier to levy. So, you know, the fossil fuel industry, 
has made $4 trillion last year. And we're asking for 1% of that uh, in order to be directed at a loss and damage fund. We're asking the shipping industry, which has tremendous amount of emissions, if, if uh, there was a tax on the emissions of $100 per tonne of carbon, uh, we could uh, help to fund the loss and damage. Uh, and that's uh, uh, something being pioneered by the Marshall Islands that we strongly support. And then if there was a tiny financial transaction tax, they'll also help to fund loss and damage. So these are the new things we need to fund a lot, to, to fund a loss and damage uh, fund to, to deal with the third bucket. Um, driving the private sector savings into emerging markets um, for things that make money, the, the first budget, the big bucket, that's a big task. It's not going to help our countries too much, small island states, because we don't do a lot of emissions. We don't do a lot of mitigation, but it will be key to saving the world. And we've come up with an idea uh, for how you finance the just green transition, uh, partly by changing the pricing, changing the pricing system. Uh, which penalizes developing countries with huge risk premiums that are overpaying for the real risks. Uh, and we are uh, talking about creating a new agency uh, that will uh, reduce those risk premiums to a fair level, appropriate to the risks being, being made. And that will help to unblock finance to developing countries. Probably not to SIDS, but to developing countries to allow them to mitigate the climate, and that will save SIDS. If, if the climate isn't mitigated, we sink. Mm -hmm. Much of what you said about the, the changes to the financial system are more in the terms of emerging markets in general, as opposed to specifically for SIDS. These are changes that impact emerging markets. But one of the aspects that's obviously very specific to the small island states is the size and the vulnerability that comes with that. So a good example is the hurricane a few years ago that hit Dominica and wiped out over 200% of GDP overnight. That's not something that India or China is, is going to face, that, that, that percentage of, of um, GDP disappearing. So how does that vulnerability, how does some of these reforms take into account the vulnerability of small island economies? Or what would you like to see happen to um, better prepare in the event of these catastrophes? Well, there are three areas in which uh, vulnerable countries, um, climate vulnerable countries in particular, will be helped by the Bridgetown Initiative. And remember that, you know, we, 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 we present this as a planetary plan, not as a SIDS plan. And it is because it's presented as a planetary plan, it's getting noticed um, and it, we're getting a seat at the table where we can articulate the challenges of SIDS. So SIDS would benefit in three ways from the Bridgetown Initiative. The first one is we're asking the multilateral development banks to massively expand their lending with a focus on resilience. Well, who are, and the resilience investing must go to countries that are most vulnerable. And that will benefit SIDS tremendously because as a percent of income, we are most vulnerable. Um, uh, I, I think uh, I'll, I'll come back to vulnerability and vulnerability measures in a moment. The second way in which Bridgetown benef will benefit, benefit small island development states is in loss and damage. We say, look, you need a loss and damage fund. You need new levies for loss and damage. Who will benefit most from that loss and damage fund? It'll be SIDS. 
because SIDS are most being, uh, being most impacted. And we have making that more possible by making the, the, uh, that bucket the smallest bucket. It's the hardest bucket to fill and we've made it smaller. And by making it smaller, you make it easier to be filled. Um, and then the third way is that we uh, in the Caribbean have pioneered natural disaster clauses in our debt. So we're now the world's largest issuer of natural disaster clauses and sovereign bonds, but St. Kitts and Grenada were the first ever to do it. So the Caribbean is a first in this and many other things. And we are persuading the world to follow our example. Uh, we are persuading big, rich, and poor countries to, to follow our example, to change the, 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 the financial system completely so it's more shock-absorbing. Now, we, it won't benefit us because we already have them, but it will allow other SIDS who don't have them to adopt them more easily. So those are three direct ways. But let me say, James, a, a few things about vulnerability. My father was the chief, the head of economic affairs of the Commonwealth Secretariat in the 1980s, when he realized that a number of small island states were being graduated. Uh, their income per head was rising above uh, the, the level for which they got special concessionary money. And he was concerned that the income per head did not fairly reflect some of the unique problems that come with smallness. Um, and so he commissioned the first work in vulnerability uh, and vulnerability measures. Now, um, I think that the, the, the challenge of where we are today is that um, people are looking at uh, trying to, uh, they're, they're recognizing a whole range of vulnerabilities. And so people are looking at creating something called a universal multi-dimensional vulnerability measure. Now, that will not help SIDS. Mm -hmm. That will not help SIDS because we are vulnerable to certain things, but there are many things we're not vulnerable to. And there are many things that large landlocked countries are very vulnerable to that we're not vulnerable to. And so if you average across several vulnerabilities, that average becomes almost as meaningless as GDP per capita. The problem with GDP per capita is it's an average. It doesn't take into account all these unusual exceptions. The problem with multi-dimensional vulnerability, it's an average. And so a country may have acute vulnerability to climate change, but not vulnerable to other things, will average out and will not appear vulnerable. Using universal multi-dimensional vulnerabilities, few SIDs appear at the top of that ranking. And so, I've been arguing that what we need to do is recognize there are multiple vulnerabilities, but say, look, if the world believes that climate change is an important thing and there's money for climate change, there needs to be a climate vulnerability index to drive that money to the most vulnerable people. If the world recognizes that there is a water scarcity problem in the world, we need a water scarcity vulnerability index to drive that money there. If the world recognizes that there's a gender violence problem, as there is, including in many SIDS, there needs to be a, an index of gender violence, which will drive that money 
uh, there. So I think that's the way we deal with multiple vulnerabilities. That was a very, very, very long answer to your question. No, but it was a very, a very important answer. And I think, as you said, these systems are not set up with small states in mind. And so the measurements that are being used just simply don't cater for those. I know there's a number of countries, even in the last few years, that have graduated from the, the least developed countries' uh, metrics. And so actually don't want to be considered middle-income countries because they lose um, certain privileges, for want of a better word, um, that come with that, that, that status. Um, to move on to a bit more of a, the political question, so this Bridgetown initiative has obviously gathered steam over the last year at the COP in November in Egypt. Um, it was uh, really on the agenda and, and there's been a lot of discussion on the Bridgetown um, initiative. This is, as you mentioned, uh, something that people have tried to tried to solve for, for decades and people have proposed solutions and um, that has not been, um, I would say, this level of traction. So how has Barbados, a small country of less than half a million people, been able to get the world's attention, get world leaders on board and really show leadership on this issue that, as you said, affects um, not just Barbados or the Caribbean, but many, many countries around the world? Well, I think that first and foremost, I must say that we have in Barbados, we're lucky to have a fairly fearless leader uh, and if we uh, explain to the leader what we think needs to be done, uh, her first response is, who do I call now? Uh, you know, who, how, how do we start this? Um, and I think that has been um, a, a critical factor. But I think an, another important factor is that for too long, many of our countries have focused on what do we need and uh, demanding people give it to us. And the world does not respond well to that. Maybe it should, but it does not. Uh, I often, I often uh, quip that uh, the countries we, we are speaking to uh, are not electing governments uh, who have been elected on the basis that they will fund foreigners. They're electing governments who are elected on the basis that they will deport foreigners. I mean, that's the world we're living in. So standing there saying you owe me money is it's just not going to get anywhere. Um, so, you know, I remember sitting at this desk, actually, and thinking, if we're going to make the world change, we have to create a global coalition. It can't be seen as a SIDS fight, a South fight. It's going to be a global fight. And how, because it's very obvious to us, because we're, we're in the front line of the fight, right? I don't need to explain to my, my Global South uh, friends and, and neighbors and brothers and sisters what we're going through. I need to bring in, I need to get the Global North to understand and be part of the Global Coalition. So that is where we began thinking, well, how do we bring them in? How do we make them feel part of this solution? that they feel benefit part of the solution. So, you know, one is about activating the multilateral development banks, not their aid budgets. Um, they need to use their good credit ratings to make the multilateral development banks expand more. So we are asking something of them, but something that they can easily do. And then we are emphasizing the global mitigation of climate. 
because a global mitigation of climate will use their capital and sometimes their technology uh, to, it's basically a form of global industrial strategy for which they will be fully engaged in. Um, our countries and our companies need to be fully engaged in it too, but it's such a global uh, uh, fight that global industrial strategy to change the climate is the way to get rich countries involved. And that's why we created a, uh, an idea of a, of, a, of a global climate mitigation trust that will lower the risk of investing and bring in uh, private savings from all over the world to invest in developing countries. Um, to help accelerate the green transformation. Uh, because if we didn't have that extra finance, we would have a green transformation, but it will come too slowly for the world, mm -hmm. for the planet. And so we need to accelerate it. So that's how we uh, engaged the global north. And I think, I think it was recognizing that, that you're not going to make a difference by, uh, by talking about needs and not talking about how we are all going to move together uh, forward on a journey, making sure that we align to big groups, not just SIDS, but climate vulnerable countries, uh, not just climate vulnerable countries, but the global South and the global North. Um, I think that that is why it's also a bunch of practical things, things that everybody can do. And it doesn't require any one country to write a very big check. There's some checks to be written. They're smaller checks. Uh, um, and their checks be written by maybe the fossil fuel companies, people who are washed with cash today, um, or, or, or other, other sectors. So it's a healthy dose of pragmatism and uh, strategic alliances in, in a large part that enable this to happen. Um, the loss and damage at the most recent COP did get a lot of attention, and there was some progress with that. I'm curious to know for you, the role of the UNFCCC COPs and the, these meetings are happening every year to discuss the whole range of mitigation and, and, and adaptation. Um, do, do they achieve what they set out to? And do they still have a, have a role, however, almost 30 years on? They are a very odd beast. I remember sitting uh, at Sharm el Sheikh in a pavilion, I forget whose it was, I think it was a university, uh, grabbing a coffee and observing all the richness of humanity. Someone passed dressed as death with a, you know, a, a sort of um, uh, a plow uh, and uh, uh, there were other people uh, campaigning for vegetarianism and there was, it's all of humanity is there. But also rich countries and poor countries, fossil fuel producers and fossil fuel consumers and renewable energy technologies. It's the only place on earth in which everybody connected to the climate is in one place. And that I think must be a huge opportunity. And I think that if we are going to make changes, it will only be because we have a global coalition. So it is an important forum. Because everybody's there, it's also a difficult forum. But I think we saw last year, it was an excellent um, example of the uh, uh, amazing leadership by Antigua, 
uh, in EOSIS, uh, alongside a um, unbelievable solidarity expressed by the Pakistan chair of the G77, and G77 in particular. Um, and the combination of the two, uh, I think we played, we played a part in helping to, uh, uh, help contributing to the agenda. This was a moment we needed to do things on. Um, but I think those two players were critical and my heroes of the COP. Um, and when the world saw every single G77 country saying, we're with AOSIS, we're with the loss and damage fund. You know, the Europeans so felt compelled. Europe, Europe has a, a sort of instinctive desire to think about solidarity and think about um, the climate. And they were drawn into that. And so the United States actually ended up being isolated. Um, I think the United States strategy may well have been just speculating to isolate China. And then suddenly they found themselves isolated. And they, you know, this was not their number one uh, desire, but they joined in to be part uh, and they sh it should be recognized. Uh, that this was, you know, they were doing this in a way that um, they felt this was good for the world, not because that was their intention and their strategy uh, and their belief. Um, so that was a very good example of how unity and clarity of purpose can be very powerful. Now we have to fund the fund uh, and that's going to require, again, political unity global north and global south. I'm a member of the transition committee, but this is not going to be a technical solution. This is going to be first, the politicians agreeing that the world needs to fund this with cash. We need certain sectors to contribute. Um, and then we want our technicians to design the system that will make sure that it does not raise the cost of living, does not hurt the poorest people, is as spread uh, and effective as possible. Okay. Thank you. And I can see that um, Sharm el-Sheikh was uh, one level of uh, chaos, for want of a better word. I'm sure Dubai this year is going to be um, even, even more so. And I completely agree. I remember walking in and seeing a group of people dressed as polar bears campaigning and then realizing they were actually campaigning in favor of nuclear power, which is not what I'd initially expected, and seeing this whole range of viewpoints of people. So you end up I think part of the problem then becomes that you're fighting each other to some extent. There are all the fights happening within the COP on some of these issues, nuclear being an obvious an, an obvious one as well. But at the same time, even though the political progress may be painfully slow, there is so much happening and so much traction. It does kind of give you that energy to see that there is, there is progress. Um, so a final question before we wrap up on the topic of climate justice and really what does climate justice look like to a country like Barbados? Well, I'm going to say some, some unpopular and difficult things. We understand climate justice. The rich countries, uh, global warming has not been caused by the emissions today. Global warming has been caused by the history of emissions. And 70% of the stock of emissions is contributed by the richest countries. 
You could say quite fairly that they are rich because they contributed. They stock of worldly missions. They, their narrative is they're rich because they're clever and they're innovative, but the reality is they're rich because of the exploitation of resources, uh, including uh, at times in the saddest uh, parts of our humanity history, uh, exploiting of people, but also of resources. So justice demands that they pay a great contribution. They have, over the years, reduced their energy intensity. They have raised taxes so that they have clean air. Clean air matters to them. They are now wealthy and they live long and clean air matters more to them than, than it might for poor people whom they're lucky to survive. And so the emissions have now switched. So even if the rich countries did everything, it would not be enough to save us from 1.5. Developing countries now represent 63% of all emissions and they are driving us uh, those emissions are driving us towards the end of our carbon budget. So rich countries are pointing at developing countries. Developing countries are pointing at rich countries. Climate justice is critical, is important. Injustice is a strong element. But equally, it has become an obstacle to progress because everybody believes that the other side needs to do more out of justice, out of uh, carrying the weight of where they are. Some say the weight of where we are, some say the weight of where we were. So we need to find, we need to recognize the injustice. The injustice of climate is the injustice of development and poverty is no different. But it's not going to be solved by a justice, by seeking justice. It needs to be solved by us recognizing the injustice and the pain and hurt and finding a solution of, uh, that will finance our way to a better place so that no one is carrying this burden or certainly the, the least able are not carrying the burden for the wealthiest. So that their justice has to be embedded in the solution. But if justice is the only thing we think about, that's one of the reasons why we're stuck. So we need a solution. We need progress. Everybody needs to move. But justice needs to be embedded in the solution, but just focused on justice does not solve the problem. Does that make any sense? I think so. I need a moment to process. Uh, but I, I completely agree with you in terms of how, how this seems. And it's also important to remember that climate justice has different scales itself. Climate justice on the global level, climate justice within a region or within a country. And I think that's something that we'll be um, addressing in, in future events as well. Well, I mean, can I just point out, Oxfam has done this great work about how you know, really, it's rich people all over the world, including in our countries, who are the biggest consumers um, of, of fossil fuels. And, you know, we, so you're quite right. We're slicing it by country. We're slicing it by history, but we could slice it within countries too. There are very important justice issues that we need to recognize and our solutions need to recognize that. But if we focus exclusively on it, it's not going to itself bring us a solution.
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Professor Passaud, Avinash, thank you so much. Um, that was a really insightful discussion. It was an absolute honor to hear more. And I think we will be keenly following the progress of the Bridgetown Initiative from here to Dubai and beyond. Um, at Island Innovation, we have a island space during the COPs that we um, cover news related to islands from around the world, SIDS included, but also um, islands that don't have a uh, seat at the table, let's say, um, without a, a UN seat, uh, a UN position. Um, so, so can I just you. say yes. that, you know, Bridgetown will succeed if Bridgetown is not about the Prime Minister, uh, Mia Moore Motley, not about Barbados, not about Avnash Pasod, but about everybody. And everybody is Bridgetown. That's how we succeed. And we hope we can, we're listening carefully to make sure we can represent everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you. I think it's a very important cause that, um, as you say, it's uh, it's it's a solution that has global um, global significance. And it's really interesting to hear the link between the small island states and also um, the wider emerging economies. Um, with that, we're out of time. Um, so I will have to wrap up um, for everyone watching. Just a reminder, we have two more sessions later on today, where, where depending on where you are in the world. Um, up next in um, an hour or so, uh, we have uh, a session transforming the future of ESG reporting and governance. And later this evening, small and medium enterprises building island entrepreneurial uh, ecosystems, all of which uh, will be very relevant uh, to continue this conversation. So thank you again, Avinash, and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. Bye.